from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. February marks Black History Month, an opportunity to celebrate the contributions Black Americans have made to society. And today we're going to be celebrating that. But before that, given the themes of this episode, we want to acknowledge the brutal murder of Tyree Nichols and the violence towards high schooler Taurus Sledge, both by police. This horrific violence only adds to the urgent call for alternatives to policing in America. And this conversation today is about imagining and realizing those alternatives. As it turns out, it's been done before, and Black Americans have always led the way. This conversation was recorded before recent events, so we don't address them directly. But we do dive into the possibility of a better vision for our country. Advocates are rightly calling for communities to slash police budgets and reinvest that funding into community health services. These calls have been met with varying degrees of buy-in, with some claiming that they are too idealistic or even naive. But all we need to do is to look to Black history to prove that these naysayers are wrong. This has been done before. This is the story of our country's first ambulance service, an alternative to policing that became a model used across the country. Freedom House was founded in Pittsburgh's historically Black neighborhood, The Hill, in 1967. Back then, police were responding to all health emergencies, a service they were not effectively providing, particularly to Black communities. At a time when the U.S. was deeply segregated and reeling from the civil rights movement, Freedom House provided both life-saving health care and career advancement for Hill residents who were both underserved and often overlooked by society. Here to talk with us about Freedom House, its ongoing legacy, the importance of community-based emergency response, and why alternatives to policing are both so important and so possible— are John Moon, former Freedom House EMT and retired assistant chief of Pittsburgh's Emergency Medical Service, and Brandon Buskey, director of the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. John, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. So I want to start with you, John. We're so excited to have you with us today. (laughs) Finding you was really thrilling. Uh, Because this is an underreported story, and it shouldn't be. As the nation's first emergency medical service, Freedom House made history and changed how the world responds to crises. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that time. What was Pittsburgh like back in 1967? The Hill District, which I grew up in, was one of the forgotten communities uh, as far as uh, the individuals living there were concerned. We had to solely rely on the police uh, for basically everything, getting back and forth to the emergency room. We were not able to get something as basic as a cab uh, to come into the community to take people to doctor's appointments and things of that nature. Um, Not to malign the police, but oftentimes when they came to uh, a resident's home in Pittsburgh, particularly the Hill District, there wasn't adequately trained individuals there. So oftentimes you got what you got and a paddy wagon would pull up in front of your residence and two guys would get out and maybe they were assigned that 
duty today and didn't feel like doing it. Their training was very minimal. So they placed her in the back of the wagon, which probably the call before had transported a prisoner to jail or a intoxicated individual to a uh, counseling center or whatever. But that was all that existed during that time. And uh, oftentimes when uh, you were placed back there, both officers got up front and uh, they would race you to the hospital or took their time. Uh, It was definitely a bumpy ride because you were on a canvas cot lying on the floor. The unfortunate thing about that is if you deteriorated to an extent where you stopped breathing or your heart stopped beating uh, during your transport, um, oftentimes you were worse by the time you got to the emergency room or you didn't survive the the trip uh, in general. And that was uh, the norm uh, in Pittsburgh during the early 70s. So you first began working with Freedom House in 1972, which was about five years into the program at that point. What was the program's reputation in the community? How did you get involved and and why did you want to? My encounter with them was rather unique because I worked as an orderly in a hospital. An orderly at that time was more or less one step up from, I would say, housekeeping. So the training that was required was primarily lifting and carrying and, and, and things of that nature. So I'm in one of the patient's rooms that was being discharged, and a group of two black guys came in in white uniforms, both had afros uh, and beards, uh, and that was the style back in the early 60s. It dawned on me that these two guys conducted themselves with such professionalism. They actually commanded that environment that I was in, in a very positive sense. And I happened to look at this patch on their left breast, and it said Freedom House Ambulance Service. I said, okay, where can I find these people to get this kind of job? So I, I kind of did a little bit of research after they left, and I found out where Freedom House's offices were which happened to be directly across the street from the hospital that I worked at. So during my lunch hour, I went over, went up to the 10th floor, walked in and told the person, I'm here to apply for a job for Freedom House Ambulance Service. So the gentleman said, okay, well, um, if I showed you a picture of the heart, would you be able to diagram the chambers of the heart? Um, No. He said, okay, well, you're not qualified to work here. But... I left there in, in, in disappointment and said there has to be some kind of place that I could get this training and, and, and get back there. So I did some research, sort of like you all did to find me, uh, and found out that there was a training class at one of the local uh, police training academies. And uh, I called and signed up and went there for 13 weeks, twice a week, and I took the training and passed the practical and the written exam and went back to Freedom House and got hired on the spot. And as they say, the rest is history. This is an incredible story. Brandon, why is it so important that we know this story right now in the broader context of the conversations that we are having about alternatives to policing? After the uprisings in 2020, there were a number of people, a number of people asking the question of, you know, is there a better way? 
than relying on the instruments of state violence in order to achieve real community safety, right? We all want to feel safe. We, we all deserve to feel safe. But just this increasing consensus around the country that uh the way that we're conducting policing right now is not achieving those ends. And they're not getting to the root causes of many of the problems that we're concerned about when you talk about substance abuse, when you talk about mental health, when you talk about uh, homelessness, right? And I think the Freedom House example is, is a great, is, is a great story of the promise that, that this time holds for us, right? And I see so many parallels when John talks about how he became involved, right? You had, much like today, a police force in so many places in this country that are just ill-suited to do so many of the tasks that we ask them to do, most notably for today's conversation, dealing with mental health. And you had a number of people in the community who were really trying to set up a community-based alternative that served Black people, that served traditionally underserved communities in a way that really led to true safety, right? There are ways to take care of these problems beyond relying on the police. I think another reason it felt so unique also was because many of the people that you were working alongside with Freedom House were Black men who had recently returned uh, as Vietnam vets or who were recently incarcerated. What did it do for the Hill District to employ and train people who needed opportunities to then show up and serve their community? And how did the community of the Hill District respond to that? Well, the interesting part about that is we're uh, focusing primarily on the ambulance service itself. But Freedom House itself was a nonprofit agency uh, in the Hill uh, that primarily were concerned about the residents' job training and voter registration and perhaps uh, getting food to them. Uh, so that's it was a community organization, Phil Halland, who was the president of the Maurice Falk Medical Fund. And he was part of the, the brain trust. And he came up with the concept that if Freedom House itself could drop off and deliver food to the residents of the Hill, why could they not deliver medical care? So he started talking to people at then Presbyterian University Hospital, uh, the director there who put him in touch with Dr. Peter Saffer, who at that time was looking for someone to test his concept of CPR and, and treatment outside of the hospital. So all of those pieces were actually brought together. Saffer had all these ideas, but he didn't have anyone to test them on. And, and so Freedom House was the perfect choice because they were part of the job training program and getting perhaps unemployable individuals or underemployed or, uh, people a couple of Vietnam veterans or, or, or people that uh, life had thrown them a curveball during the course of their life and things like that. And that's the beauty that I look at every time I think about what Freedom House itself put together and the people that work there. We were all considered under one umbrella, uh, the least likely to succeed, hardcore unemployables, uh, people that uh, society had given up on 
uh, society's rejects. But society, from my standpoint and from my opinion, made one mistake, is that they didn't tell us that. So we went about doing a job serving a community and doing the things that was needed for that community, not with the concept that we're going to create this grand organization or that uh, people are going to remember us for doing A, B, C, D, and E. We were just performing a service and without the intent of trying to reap any benefits from it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it really was a community that came together to address and respond to the needs that they were seeing. First, as you said, through providing groceries or food. And then as it developed to seeing really what the need was in the community and responding from there. Brandon, at the ACLU, when we talk about alternatives to policing, you know, we talk about this model of divesting from police budgets and reinvesting in community-based programs and resources. How does this really reflect our hope that communities can actually devise something that is based out of the need that is seen at a community level. Our focus is about reimagining community safety and and really looking for models of public safety that are based in community need and are based in community efficacy, right? And there are just a number of things in what John just said. It was just so so rich that I want to, to emphasize in answering the question, one of which is we know at a broad level that while we often focus on the police as a means of reducing crime and things like that, that when you support community groups like Freedom House who are doing not only, as John described, emergency services, but are also going out in the community and supporting and meeting people where they are and filling those kinds of needs, that it does begin to increase the chances for more safety in these communities. And so I think when we're, when we're talking about how we move forward in, in this conversation, then we, we really have to be attuned to uh, looking to the community for uh, its vision on, on what safety means and then empowering people in the community to help articulate and carry out that vision, right? And, and so when we think about a thing like having someone respond to a mental health crisis, you know, at some level, like with Freedom House, you, you definitely want people who have a clinical background who are involved, people who understand the medical complications in that situation. But you can also have, and you must really have, people uh, from the community who have lived experience, who maybe themselves have been the subject of police calls or been through the system, but understand what people in those situations are going through. And that's the kind of equity lens that will really allow this to be driven by what's happening in these communities. We want people to be well-trained, but that doesn't mean you have to have a degree, right? You could be somebody who is returning from prison, who's now becoming a violence interrupter. You could be somebody uh, who yourself has issues with mental health, who wants to go out and use that lived experience to help others, right? And and so we can incorporate those types of experiences as we build out these alternatives to police response. John, I saw you nodding. Did you have something to add? Yes, I think utilizing the community as a whole is is extremely critical. And and I think that's the model that, that Freedom House uses. It incorporated people within the community if you do that, you bring about a lot of pride 
uh, within whatever type of organization that you're actually uh, developing or designing because they know firsthand on what's lacking and, and what obviously should be there versus what isn't. So I think that's a very uh, critical idea. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the response to Freedom House. Anytime you're disrupting the status quo, there's going to be some kind of pushback. And when reading about Freedom House, it was clear to me that both that two different groups of people that have some overlap um, were a little upset about the program itself and, and those being white residents and police. What was the pushback? The police looked at Freedom House as a threat to their jobs themselves. So in order to combat that threat, what you do is you don't give Freedom House the actual cause that they're there for, uh, namely life-threatening calls. Police more or less had the control of the dispatch system at that particular time. So if you had a medical emergency or what have you, you still had to call the police. And they decided whether or not to send Freedom House. We had to combat that challenge within itself. So we purchased a police scanner and we started monitoring the police calls uh, within the hill. And if a life-threatening call came in, we were out the door and on this call, and 98, 99% of the time, we beat the police there. And there were often times where we would get there, treat the patient, and transporting him to the emergency room or her, and often passing the police going to the person's residence. As far as residents were concerned, Freedom House itself was concerned primarily with the Hill District, which was predominantly African-American or Black community at that time. Your affluent neighborhoods uh, still had to rely on the police to transport them back and forth or to transport them to the emergency room in the event of a a medical problem. Uh, That's where politics rears its ugly heads as well as racism. In the political arena, they in turn challenged the mayor at that time How dare you allow those people over there in that rundown neighborhood to have better medical care than me? And I'm living over here in my $500,000 home. I gave it to your reelection campaign. I'm the CEO of this company or own this business or what have you. The nerve of you. And I voted for you. So he in turn had to kind of succumb to that political pressure on that end. And, And once he did, Uh, that's when we started getting a lot of our backlashes and things from uh, both the police as well as uh, the political arena during that time frame. It's worth noting that one study during this time found that the police responded with improper treatment to 62% of calls. Maybe they were defensive because they knew they weren't doing an adequate job. Brandon, I do want to bring you in here again. You know, I think when we think about pushing for better community safety, alternatives to police showing up on mental health calls, we know that there is pushback to that idea or that concept for sure. We also find that some police officers know that they shouldn't be responding to those calls, right? What is the 
tension that we have to walk when we're speaking with communities about these kinds of alternatives. Do we have to convince police to get on our side here? How do we convince, you know, city council people to get on our side here? It's a critical question that that you pose because the tension is complex. And and one one thing that I do want to point out is at some level, this is easy, right? The upside here is that overwhelming majorities of people support the idea that the first responder to someone in a mental health crisis or who uh, is facing uh, a drug or substance abuse crisis should be somebody who has mental health background, a clinician, and not the police. And as you say, a number of police chiefs across the country have said, you know, we are being called upon to do too much. And you hear that sentiment about law enforcement of frustration with being asked to be social workers, to be involved in the school setting, to carry out all these different components to the point where you know, there's something like 10 million arrests in this country and, and only something like 5% actually involved in active violence. And many of the other aspects of those calls could be successfully handled by someone who didn't show up with weapons and the authority of, of the state. And so I think there is a lot of convergence there. The tension comes in uh, in much the same way that, that John articulates, when, when it becomes a threat to the police force's perceived dominance over public safety in a location, right? And so one example of this, the, a, a fairly well-known program out of Eugene, uh, um, Oregon, Cahoots, one of the, maybe the, one of the first uh, well-known uh, mobile crisis units really attuned to these issues well-respected throughout the community, has been a part of the police department. But then when the uprisings occur in 2020 and people in Eugene say, hey, shouldn't we be giving more resources to cahoots and having them respond to more individuals in crisis and expanding their role over the police, that's when you saw the pushback. And, And so police have a number of organized interests through their lobbies, through their unions that really strive to preserve their force uh, magnitude, their budgets, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's also really important to note that, as John, you mentioned, uh, before Freedom House, people were uh, maybe dying before they even were able to make it to the hospital. The situation that we're in today, this problem is also very deadly. There is a strong connection between police violence um, as it intersects with substance abuse issues, mental disabilities. Brandon, can you detail some of that um, intersection and the risk that people face who are experiencing one of these kinds of mental health crises to ending up in a situation where there is police violence? Absolutely. And to give a sense of the context of the people who experience police violence, who are you know killed by the police, victims of police uh, shootings and, and things of that nature, somewhere between one in four to 50% of those individuals have a mental health issue. Uh, and uh, sometimes severe, sometimes varying degrees, but they are uh, very often and quite disproportionately the victims of police violence. And that's for a number of reasons. Police are simply 
not trained well enough in these kinds of situations. We often hear about the warrior model of policing where their training, they spend most of their training in how to use weapons and how to use force and things like that, rather than de-escalation and stabilization and referral to services. And so they come to the scene with a certain orientation, right? But, but even before that, if you're, if you're dealing with somebody with a mental health, in a mental health or behavioral health crisis, just the very act of, of somebody in a police uniform, flashing lights and sirens coming to a residence, coming to a location can already exacerbate things. And, and so they're already behind the eight ball. And then if they come in and they don't have the appropriate training, don't understand how to de-escalate a situation, don't understand that some of the signs that many might take as, as violence can actually be mitigated through just talking to someone, simply backing off. That's when you have situations like what happened in Rochester with Daniel Prude and so many other cases where police enter a scene of somebody having a behavioral health uh, crisis, simply exacerbate the situation and someone ends up uh, with a serious injury or, or death. Even the act of a police officer coming in, perhaps not escalating things, but still deciding to take that individual uh, into custody and, and make an arrest. And, and now you have an individual who, instead of getting connected to services, is being processed through the criminal punishment system. And, and that's going to have lasting lifelong consequences for that individual, their family, and the community. And, and so there's, there's just really uh, so many ways that this can go wrong, even if the police come in and try to do their best, but still decide to take a law enforcement approach to these situations. Thank you for explaining that a little further. You know, I think it's so important when we're talking about Freedom House to talk about how it became the model for our community paramedic response and that it is possible that we can dream of a community solution that can have ripple effects across the country and can change the systems that we operate and use every day. So, John, eventually Pittsburgh decides that this is a really amazing thing that Freedom House created and started. And they say, we're going to absorb it. In 1975, Pittsburgh developed its EMS service and absorbed Freedom House. You, I know, continue to work as an EMT. What was that transition period like? And how did it feel knowing that you know, at first they were naysayers and then they decided, actually, that's a really good idea. We should copy that and, and take over. Well, one of the problems uh, we had at Freedom House is that we could not compete uh, in a political arena. If you want to get rid of uh, things that rely on you or your assistance, then you withhold the assistance. So the very first uh stumbling block is we were issued a memorandum that we are not to use our sirens going on emergency calls in a particular location that Freedom House served. You can't. That was a executive order from the mayor's office. Freedom House in turn also had a contract with the city of Pittsburgh to provide emergency ambulance service in the business district. So what you do is you start withholding your funding or you start dispersing it in such sporadic ways that it makes it difficult for the organization to exist. So those are two of the initial hurdles that Freedom House had to, to overcome. The third one was that 
when Pittsburgh decided to start their own system, there was no room in the system for an entity such as Freedom House. Even though Freedom House had an agreement with the city of Pittsburgh to absorb the ambulance service, including its employees, which they did, but there was nothing written that said they had to keep them. So once that transition took effect, there was a systematic way of trying to remove as many of Freedom House's employees as they possibly could. And it was very, very, very successful. 85 to 90% of the people that came over from Freedom House were, I would say, phased out of Pittsburgh EMS. Now, I, I don't want to sound like a disgruntled employee here or anything like that, because to this day, I love Pittsburgh EMS and I love the people that work there. And they will always have a special place in my heart. But the goal was is to get rid of as many of the people. And if you do that, you get rid of the history. So that was the effort. To put it bluntly, to answer your question, it was somewhat traumatic during that transition period. You weren't allowed to do anything. You were essentially the third person on a two-person crew. You couldn't talk on the radio. You couldn't examine patients. Uh, you couldn't have any decisions. So those are the types of things to frustrate the respective individuals. So eventually, look, I don't need to deal with this. Uh, Y'all got it. I can find someplace else to, to go. Um, or tomorrow you're having a test. If you fail this test, you're out of here. Or tomorrow, instead of you working daylight shift, you're working a night shift. So we were actually put through different types of, of challenging situations that made it very problematic. Imagine Pittsburgh bringing its system into existence and 98% of its employees were white. And they even put a vehicle in the Hill District, which was all white. I remember going on a number of calls where the police were on the scene and, and the police were not used to seeing a black person on the crew because you got a whole white service. The police would ask, well, who is that guy? Instead of just saying, oh, he's just one of our new employees or whatever the case is. Oh, he's just one of the guys that came over from Freedom House. If you take all of that, then you, you start whittling people out. Uh, that's so tough, John. But despite this intent, you went on to have a great career in emergency medicine. And you eventually became the assistant chief of Pittsburgh EMS you know, you've also got to see Freedom House live on. I know that it had been disrupted, but in 2020, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Health Plan launched Freedom House 2.0, a 10-week program to train people as emergency medical technicians and community health workers. And I know you've helped mentor students and been at graduations. What has it been like to see this new cohort pick up the mantle? Uh, very good. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of the program itself. I, I really am. And I love it because it was patterned after Freedom House to go into the community. And once again, that's where your strength is, is in the community that you serve and grab individuals that have no concept of pre-hospital care and train them to provide that skill. The program itself is very, very successful. 
you know, the story of Freedom House is one that I think everyone should know. And that's a huge reason why we wanted to bring you both here today. How do we best carry on the Freedom House legacy? And how do we make sure that everyone knows this story? One of the things that uh, I would like to see is the history of EMS taught in every paramedic training program, EMT training program, as, as well as every emergency physician training program. I would like for it to be part of the orientation process of newly hired EMTs and or paramedics. Just to give you one quick example, right now we're in an opioid crisis throughout the country and the drug of choice is Narcan. Freedom House gave Narcan back in 1972, the very first to take it out of the hospital and out into the street to treat overdoses. So if you take that and, and you look at the legacy that um, we left behind, uh, you can be nothing but proud, and I know that I am. I would say to keep this legacy alive and carry it into the current day, what we're seeing now is, is a revolution in, in mental health and behavioral crisis response. I think the lesson from Freedom House is we have to start telling that story and keep telling that story now and, and, and really emphasize that these are Black-led, community-led efforts to redefine community safety and hold on to that history and keep telling it. And then as we are building these programs in other places to continue centering equity in everything that we do, it's not enough that we just set up the program and then have it co-opted by uh, the powers that be. There has to be a real sensitivity to saying, no, this, this has to go forward with the community uh, that started it. And we have to not only be consulted, we not only have to be involved, we have to be a part of how decisions get made and how this grows from here on out. So it's telling that history and then building the power to make sure that you maintain control over what's happening in, in your locality. Brilliant answers from both of you. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming and sharing this story, John. It's incredible. We're so excited that you're here with us. And Brandon, as always, a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And John, it's been a real, real honor. Thank you so much. Same here, Brandon. Thank you very much. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. This is near and dear to my heart. So any kind of way I can get that message out there, I'm available to do. Well, now I have your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. Thanks very much for listening. If you appreciated this conversation, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay kind.